Father, thank you for this class. Thank you for the wonderful opportunity that we have to look at your word. Father, thank you that you have not left us confused in disarray in any capacity, but that you have given us clear instructions as to how we, your people, may glorify you in our marriages and families, may receive your blessing, Lord, not because we deserve it, but because we're following your instructions and how we can even be a blessing to others, Father, as we cultivate a godly marriage that others may follow our example and vice versa. Father, we pray that you would bless our time. Thank you for everyone who is here and for their desire, Lord, all the more to learn together and to, Father, be the people that you've called us to be, husbands and wives and even those who are planning on being married or who are praying about that for the future. Lord, I pray that these principles and practices would be helpful and fruitful uh, in each of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brethren. Hey, so we have progressed. Remember, we're sort of building a framework, a a biblical, a theological framework for marriage. Um, I did a conference once and I titled it God's Design for Maximum Impact. God's beautiful design for maximum impact. And the whole point of that conference was, in terms of marriages, it's like, hey, listen, this is a beautiful design of God. He created marriage, and it is designed for maximum impact as missional Christians for the Great Commission. And then obviously there's blessing that comes when we follow God's commandments and God's design. Um, But uh, the first week that we were together, if you remember, we talked about the fact that not everything is hunky-dory, right? There's a crisis that is taking place. There's a lot. I gave you some statistics. And again, those are things that you need to take with a grain of salt always, statistics. But there is a sense in which it's a reality that marriages are not doing very well in our country. And that even infiltrates into the church, as you know. And then we said, well, what is the, what is the solution then? And the solution, of course, is to return to God's design, Right. His beautiful design for maximum impact. So we went into Genesis chapter 1 briefly there. Genesis 2, spent some time there doing exegesis, right? Exegesis is the, the, the act of drawing out. The act of drawing out. As opposed to isogesis, which would be what? Imposing, reading into the text. Exegesis is the idea of drawing out from the biblical text, right? The truth of God's Word, meaning, right? Within its... Uh, with its original context and audience. And so we drew out some principles from there and even some foundational principles, timeless principles really, right? That apply not only at the beginning, right? When God created marriage and family, but also carry over into the present. So cultures change, people come and go, kingdoms come and go, rulers come and go, but God's principles are unchanging and they are timeless principles. And if we apply them, By the grace of God, albeit imperfectly and in our weakness, guess what? God is glorified, brethren. We are blessed in our marriages, and we are a blessing to others around us as well, right? So we looked at some of those. We drew out some some takeaway, timeless principles, if you remember last week. And so now, so think about this. By the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, right? This is Moses writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Innocence, right? There's no shame. Perfect, wonderful fellowship and relationship with one another. There is no sin. No sin. 
where did everything go wrong at the fall, right? And this is what we want to get into in this particular session, what I call the great reversal, okay? The great reversal, humanity's rebellion. This is what is known as the fall, right? This is where our problems begin, and we need to remember that, and it's a sobering reality. But I think it's a good framework for us to think through Genesis chapter 3 so that we might apply grace to our marriages, right? If we understand that we live in a broken, fallen world, then as one brother put it in, his, in one of his books that he wrote on marriage, he said, he called the, the book, When Sinners Say I Do. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? When Sinners Say I Do. Because it's true. When we pursue marriage, it's, you know, I'm one sinner, you're a sinner. We're saying I do, and let's get into this by the grace of God, right? Because we live in a broken, fallen world. This is the source and origin of that, brethren. Um, the great reversal, humanity's rebellion. Okay, so we want to get into this. We want to get into the nature of the fall. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Maybe we just get through this today, and then we get into um, the effects of the fall in verses 8 through 24, and how they are pertinent not only on a, on a cosmic level, right? The effects of the fall impacted all of creation, but also in particular, it also impacted our relationships and our marriages, but we're going to start here, the nature of the fall in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, right? There was a rebellion and a reversal of cosmic proportions here. And we need to keep this in mind as we um, navigate our marriages. Here's what went wrong right here, okay? So there's this interaction, obviously, between a serpent who is known as, who in particular, just a slithering snake? No, right? Satan, right? Satan. Um, there's multiple texts, by the way, in case you question that. There's not much debate on the, on the part of conservative scholars about this. That yes, there was a, this was an actual snake, yes, but he was more than a snake, right? As seen later on by the way that God addresses the serpent and even the enmity that will exist between his seed and her seed. There's something bigger happening here. But certainly there are implications for snakes as well, right? But this is Satan, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation 12, 15, Revelation 20, verse 2, gives evidence to the fact that this serpent is Satan, right? The devil. So Eve and the serpent are interacting here. Make sure that I turn off my phone here. And, um, and we want to look at these opening verses, okay? Now, what I want you to understand is that there was, there was strategy here on the part of Satan. There was what I call strategic deception, tactical deception. And I want us to see this in five particular points, okay, as we walk through the first seven verses. First of all, okay, the nature of the fall, strategic deception. There was doubt sown. There was doubt that was sown, right? By the way, if, if ever, I don't, I, that thing is not up. Somebody need to, needs, needs to raise their hand and say, hey, it's not turning on, okay? Please let me know. I'm assuming that you guys are seeing the same thing that I'm seeing here. Okay, doubt sown. Look at verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Notice the difference of, of uh, how he, he adds that word, right? Any tree of the garden. Brethren, this is the way that all sin begins right here. And it goes all the way back to the fall. It begins with us questioning God's Word, right? When there's doubt in our minds. Well, did God really say that? 
I mean, is that really what he meant in the biblical text, right? People do that right now with marriage as to what comprises a biblical marriage. Well, this is as old as the fall. This is what the serpent is doing, doing with, with Eve. God has thunderously and definitively spoken to Adam first and foremost back in the previous chapter and gave him instructions. And who does the serpent go after? goes after the woman, right? And is addressing her. And so there's doubt that is, that is sown there. Did God really say that? You sure that you understood Him right? Right? You sure you understood Him right? Nothing explicit, right? I mean, we look at the text and we've read this many times and we think, that's pretty bad, and it is. But notice how subtle it is. Simply asking a question. Getting Eve to think. Right? Is this really what He said? And then He uses the word any. In the Hebrew, you can translate this every you shall, did he say you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? Is that what God said? That's not what God said. Look back in chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. See that? Full freedom to enjoy everything that I've created for you. It's for you. Right? You subdue it. You rule over the, 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 the earth. You enjoy everything. And he says, verse 17, But... From the tree, the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Pretty clear? Pretty clear. But the serpent is questioning um, God's word here, right? Casting doubt. And think about this. Already, he is casting doubt as to God's goodness. God's kindness here, right? Twisting the word of God. Secondly, secondly. There's distortion of God's Word. Distortion of God's Word. He distorts God's Word. This is closely related to the first one, right? Verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it. She adds a little bit in there, doesn't she? Or touch it or you will die. So now it's almost like Eve is on her heels. Right? And later on we'll talk about this, but where was Adam? Right? Later on in verse 6, it says, and she gave to the man what? With her? Most conservative commentators will tell you that are reputable that Adam most likely was right there with Eve. So think about that. He is right there. She's on her heels. Where's the leader? Where's the shepherd of, her, of, her, of their marriage? Passive. Thank you. Passive. Right? Letting this thing unfold. So there's here's misrepresentation of God's character even, right? And in terms of what she says, already he's getting her to think that way. Right? There's a there's a, a, a sense that God is restricting you from something. He's keeping you from something good, right? And she's answering this slithering thing. I mean this would have been a great opportunity for her to sort of access her leader and say, Adam, what do you think about this? Right? Consult with her leader, right? Say, hey, what do you think? And Adam maybe say, hey, slithering thing, get out of the way, you know? Step on that thing. And step in and actually shepherd his wife through that. I want you to see this. So there's doubt, there's distortion, right? Um, there's denial here. A denial of God's Word. Look at verse 4. 
The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Every word in, the, in our English Bibles is significant. Notice, you surely. Like, hey, this is certain, Eve. In other words, God is a what? He's a liar. He's lying to you. Now, if verse 1, he's coming with her asking a not well-intentioned uh, but evil question, getting her to casting doubt in this woman, right? Now, all of a sudden, this is explicit, right? A denial, outright explicit denial now. This is a direct attack on the Creator right here. This is mutiny right here. This is what theologians call uh, erasing or deleting the Creator-Creature distinction right here, right? God is Creator with a capital C. We are His creatures, including Satan is a creature too, created by God, right? And now, all of a sudden, Satan is reversing the order and he's trying to put himself in the place of God. He's the truth teller here. Right? And Eve is listening to this. And obviously, so is Adam there. So God is he's calling God a liar. Right? He who is the father of lies. Note, brethren. Satan, he who is the father of lies is calling God a liar. And, every, and this is, there's a tone and a theme here of, of reversal. I just, as I studied this again, I was reminded, reversal, reversing roles, reversing roles, reversing roles. You know what's ironic about that, right? We're going to see later on and talk about the fact that there was, there was a reversal of even roles and responsibilities between men and women, right? Here, this is where it started, the battle, the struggle, right? I'm going to take the steering wheel, says the, the wife, and the man's like, I'm going to cr- uh, crush you. I'm going to dominate you. Generally speaking, that's how it goes, Right? Well, it's interesting, this is where that reversal began, and yet in our secular culture, in our liberal culture, that is exactly the reversal that people are trying to put into law, right? That men aren't leaders. If you talk about that, then you're a chauvinist, right? And, it's, and biblical or uh, secular feminism is saying, you know what? We as the women, we have to be equal in all things, which women ontologically in their being and essence are equal, but there's differences in roles and responsibilities. But now we're trying to put these things into law, this distortion of roles and responsibilities. Think about that. This right here, brethren, is where it began. Okay? Mark it. So there is a denial of God's Word. You surely will not die. What God told you isn't true. Right? And then there's a denunciation of God's holiness. A denunciation of God's holiness. Look at this. Verse 5. For God knows. He's speaking for God here. God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at that. So Satan takes the place of God, right? And in a sense, what he's doing here is saying, God doesn't have kind and good intentions for you. There's something that He doesn't want you to have that is good for you and best for you that He has. And if you do this, right, if you disobey Him, if you follow through with what I'm telling you to do, in, this, in essence, you are going to achieve godness. You're going to be a deity yourself. God doesn't want that. He's, he's a restricting God. Notice how this is at the core of all sin, brethren. And you know this. James chapter 1, we've been studying this together. It's so interesting that in James chapter 1, verses 13 and following, James begins to address the issue of let no one say when he is being tempted, 
And that is the inner solicitation to evil. When we are inwardly driven or we're being pulled in a direction to sin, it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Right? For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. That is, He doesn't inwardly solicit you to do evil, because that would mean that God is, is, doesn't have kind intentions for you. He actually wants something that is bad for you, i.e. that you sin, right? Does God test people? Yes. Does He inwardly solicit us to do evil so that we hurt ourselves? No. No. But it's interesting, why does James go there? Why does he go to, to God? Because it's always at the core level, at the root level, a God thing, right? At the core, we are believing a lie about that sin that we're pursuing. And even in our marriages, we're believing a lie and not believing the fact that God has promised us that if we follow through in obedience in that particular area, He will bless us, it will glorify Him, it will be a blessing for our spouse, right? So it's really a, a, a relationship with God thing in every sin, there's somewhere, somewhere in there we have wrong, distorted thoughts about God. And that is what Satan did with Eve. Getting her to have a wrong view of God. That's where it begins. That's why you should read books like Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer, right? Attributes of God, Arthur Pink, The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. That is a massive book, but it is well worth your reading, brethren. It'll take you, it took me three and a half years to read that baby when I became a Christian, right? But you know what? It was huge. And he talks about the reality there of being God conscious, of having a right view of God, right understanding of God, because everything flows from there, and also being, living in the light of the presence of God. Boy, so many of our problems, even in our marriages, would be solved if we're asking ourselves in that moment, wow, the way that I'm responding right now, the way that I'm talking right now, the way that I'm contemplating that thought in my heart, right? Whether you're a husband or wife, doesn't honor the Lord and God is watching me right now, right? He's watching this. I live God consciously, aware of His presence. And I'm cultivating a right view of God, right? Which is so key and everything flows from that. So verse 5, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, look at this. Disobedience, right? We go from doubt, distortion, denial, denunciation, disobedience. Everybody focuses on the disobedient act here in verses 6 and 7. But there was a lot more that happened before that, right? And everybody wants to debate, was it an apple? Was it a mango? What was it, right? I don't know, you know? I don't know. It was a fruit, Right? But there was a lot more. There was a, a, a high view of God that went down. There was a belief that God is good and kind and He's got kind intentions for us. And that was set aside. There was a reality that God is glorious and holy and that we're accountable to Him, right? And said there's mutiny and rebellion and questioning of His character, right? And then here's the, the disobedient acts. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Stop right there, okay? Before the actual act, right, that she takes. Think about, does that verse in verse 6, what I just read, that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Is there any other verse in the New Testament that might be a parallel verse where we're warned about these three things right here? What's that? First John, what? 2.15, right? Yes. Remember that verse? 
Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And ready for this? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and then the what? The boastful pride of life. Watch. Verse 6, right? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, right? And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. When she saw that it was good for food, that's the lust of the what? Flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And that it was, the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's the boastful pride of life. Bam, right there. It's almost like there's a single author for, in Scripture, right? It's the Holy Spirit, baby, right? Yes, multiple authors using their personalities and all of that so that they pen down the exact words that God wanted. There's a, but there's a single author, and his name is the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. So he knows why he wrote that. First John 2.15. Hey, folks, don't love the world and these things, these three categories, which everything falls under that. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And in this particular act. Once that is birthed, brethren, notice. And this in the original is like rapid fire actions. Okay? Okay, rapid fire. She took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Right? Rapid fire actions. I mean, once there's a wrong view of God and a belief that he is, He's lying to you and He's not good and He's not kind, right? And once you, you, you allow these sins to, to sort of dictate you and your patterns of, of disobedience, then the action is really pretty quick, isn't it? You've experienced this in your own life, whether it's personal holiness or even in the marriage. She took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. One of you pointed out earlier at the end of verse 6, that's how we know, and I do, I hold this view as well, that Adam was right there the whole time. Or, right, he's right there as he's seen this thing unfold now at the tail end. Either way, but I think it was throughout, and he eats. Even there, he could have stood there and said, hey, Eve, that is enough. You know, enough is enough. And what about her consulting Adam? Saying, hey, Honey muffins, you know, Adam, baby Adam, you know, honey, what do you think about this slithering thing right here? She never consults. She never asks, right? And then he just acquiesces. He abdicates his role as a leader. Um, Brothers, we're going to talk about this more later on. This is, again, a framework for then later on coming in and talking about responsibilities and roles and how we as men are to be fleshing out Biblical masculinity in our con- the context of our home life. And ladies, how you are fleshing out biblical femininity in the context of your home life. But this is a biblical framework for understanding this. And I got to tell you, right, this is a key lesson for us right here as men. From the very beginning, and later on we'll see this, when God addresses Adam, probably get to this next week, he basically says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Remember that later on? Is it wrong to listen to our wives? I thought, I thought that that is a good thing. I thought First Peter chapter three verse seven tells me, hey, you know, um, you husbands uh, likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, literally according to knowledge, right? So if you're going to have knowledge of your wife, what does that what does that entail? Listening to her. So I thought it was a good thing. Why does God say because you have listened to the voice of your wife? Why does He say that to him? Well, he did the wrong kind of listening, didn't he? where he elevated Eve's desires that were sinful desires, and there's the emphasis, sinful desires, outside of the will of God. 
He elevated her desires and just listened to her and went, went with it. Followed her lead in a sinful desire. That's the difference. So it is absolutely good, and I struggle with this, and you men struggle with this, I'm sure, to some extent or another. Okay, some of you who are older, married, you're probably like, nah, not me. I, I'm the perfect listener to my baby now, right? For most of us, <laughs> who was that? Who was that? Oh, brother, all right. I'm not even going to say it for the audio or anything like that, who that was. But he sits all the way in the back, middle section every time. For most of us who struggle with listening to our wives, right? That is a very good thing, God-honoring thing, virtuous thing. Brothers, we have room to grow in. I, I need to continue to grow in that area. That was not the issue here. The issue is when we elevate the sinful desires or priorities of our spouse, one or the other, right? Above the Word of God, right? Above the Word of God. God is not going to be honored by that. And that is where we don't follow the lead of our husbands. Um, Authority has limits, right? Authority has limits. We'll talk about this as well later on. I just want to sneak it in here so you see that this is very applicable to where we're headed and it's all cohesive, right? Authority has limits. And when we as husbands go outside of the parameters of why God gave us authority, right, which is for the benefit of, for His glory, for the benefit of our families to love our spouse and serve her and sacrifice for her, right? When we go outside of that and we hurt her in any way, emotional, physical, or whatever, right? That is going outside of the bounds of God's authority. And it is sinful. It's a distortion of God-given delegated authority for a particular purpose that is to lovingly shepherd your wife. Huge lesson, brothers. So humbling, isn't it? You know, Adam didn't even act on for the glory of God or for her benefit in following her lead in this, right? So as husbands, we should listen to our wives. They are our partner in life, closest confidant, our trusted friend, our, 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 they, they, they're loyal to us, right? They, they are for you, right? But we need to make sure that when the desires are not in accordance with the will of God, that's also where we need to come in and say, hey, honey, wife, Wife of my youth, you know? Hey, I don't think that because of this and the parameters of God's word, I think that this would be probably wrong for us to do that. And as we've sought counsel with other people, right? Another older godly couple, all of you, by the way, should have those couples that you can go to. Even if you're not struggling with your marriage in an explicit way, discipleship is a way of life. We've gone to them. Even they say that we shouldn't do that. We need to go this way. And I want you to trust me. And you know what? As my wife says to me often in those situations, where it's like, you know, debatable a little bit, right? And she'll be like, you know what, honey? I'll follow you. I trust you. You're my leader. And I'm just going to pray for you. You know? (laughs) Which is true, right? She's going to pray for me because I have to answer to the Lord. (laughs) Ultimately, I'm the one that's responsible for the relationship in an ultimate sense. She's responsible too, but I'm ultimately the one. The buck stops with me, whether we like it or not, brothers. That's part of biblical masculinity. Biblical masculinity is you take responsibility for others. And that's why as we raise up, raise our boys, right? Part, what, what is essential to biblical masculinity is can you take care of yourself so that you can take care of somebody else? As husbands, that's what we're doing. The authority is to be able to t- exercise, to love, and to take care of someone else and put them before ourselves. And obviously we have every area to grow in in that, brethren. So disobedience against God, Right? Again, there's a great um, rebellion here. 
right? All of a sudden, that, that creator-creature distinction is, is, uh, is marred, if you will, right? Before it's creator-God, He is ruler. He is the one who, who is boss with a capital B. Now, men, mankind has put, have put themselves in, a, in, the, in the, the place of God. And now all of a sudden, the creature now is fighting for rule and authority. So it's this full-blown mutiny here, okay, that's taking place. Again, as I highlighted, Eve's, Eve doesn't ever really pursue asking Adam or deferring to him in any capacity. He acquiesces his own role, okay? All right, we're going to get into the effects of uh, consequences of the fall a little bit. In just about 10 minutes, look, let's look at this. Two, there were two relational effects that came from the fall, okay? The first one is this. There was a relational breach on the vertical level. I want you to see this. The effect or consequence of the fall, verses 8 through 13, was both a relational breach on the vertical level, and we'll talk about the horizontal one right now, but look at verse 8. They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now let me ask you a question. What is that attribute of God that tells us that God knows everything? What is that attribute of God? Omniscience. Do you think that God knows what's happened already? He absolutely knows. He's sovereign. He's omniscient, right? The Lord Jesus, however, later on in the Gospels, does the same thing where he often asks people something, right? And yes, for him, he, during his humanity, he laid aside the full use of his attributes for a time to come and die for our sins, right? So there was also that in the life of Jesus. But oftentimes he'll ask people questions knowing their hearts. And John tells us that. For he knew their hearts and what was in men, right? God knows what, is, what they've done. But he wants to draw out Adam here. How does he do it? Questions, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Whew, that must have been something, huh? To hear God's voice like that and he knows what, what's happened. Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, says Adam, and was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. By the way, who is God addressing himself to right now? Adam. How come he doesn't address Eve? Well, he'll address her later, but this is already sending us a message. Who, who does God hold ultimately responsible for the sin? Adam. Later on in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, it talks about the fact that Adam is, is representative of all humanity, right? It's not that Eve didn't sin herself, but um, Adam is ultimately the one responsible for the relationship. So God is addressing Adam here, verse 9, where are you? He answers, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Do you think that there was this level of fear? Certainly reverential awe, but this is a different kind of fear, isn't it? This is a fear of shame. This is a fear of like guilt, right? Guilt. Mark that on the back of your mind, guilt with a capital G for later, okay? For next week, most likely. This is guilt, shame. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 25? And the man and his wife were both what? Naked and were not ashamed? That's not, that wasn't just on the horizontal level, but before the Lord, right? There was this openness. It was holy. It was set apart, right? And now there's shame. 
And God answers, verse 11, not because he doesn't know, but he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Look at that. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So there's this, what I want you to get from these verses, verses 8 through 11, is that there's a relational breach on the vertical level. And brethren, before our marriages um, can, can be, pursue healing and Christ-exalting, honoring kind of holiness, this is where it begins, right? I told you last week, I don't ever assume that anybody in any auditorium or preaching endeavor or conference, that everybody in there is a believer. If this sends a message to you, let it be this. There needs to be a reconciliation between you and God through faith in Jesus Christ, first and foremost, right? If your marriage is going to be a picture of Christ in the church. And this was the problem right here. The primary, first and foremost effect of the fall was a breach on the vertical level in the relationship between Adam and Eve and the Lord, Yahweh, their creator. Before that, there was openness, sweet fellowship. What has Christ come to accomplish in our lives now as redeemed sinners, right? <laughs> this is, that's what he, he, he removes this ceiling so that we're able to see the glory of God, right? How does that happen? The repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who shatters that ceiling, right? By virtue of pain for our sins on the cross, taking God's judgment and punishment for our sins upon himself. And he removes, he shatters that wall that wall of separation between us and God. That's huge. And if our marriages are going to be everything that we want them to be before the Lord, right? Then we need to make sure that that relationship with the Lord is made right first and foremost. You need to do business with God if that's where you're at as a spouse this morning. Okay? This is where it begins. This is something that I, I don't want us to miss. Okay? So there's a relational breach on the vertical level in terms of our relationship with the Lord and then there's a relational breach on the horizontal level, right? In terms of the woman and the man. All of a sudden, at the end of chapter 2, there's bliss and beauty and joy, and they're both naked and we're not ashamed. There's this beautiful intimacy, openness, and all of that. And now notice in verse 12, the man said, answers the Lord, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Boy, the world happened to... You know, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? What happened? By the way, it's not just the, the woman that he's blaming. Who is he blaming? God, he says, the woman who you gave to me with me. If you wouldn't have given her to me, this wouldn't have happened, right? Ooh, yeah, somebody's saying, Ooh, I hear you, sister or brother, whoever that was. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. It's almost like, I, did, I, I, I was helpless. Right? I couldn't say no. I mean, look at her. Right? It's beautiful. Right? Verse 13. And the Lord, or Yahweh God, said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, I take responsibility, Lord. <laughs> right? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The serpent deceived me. She points her finger back at the serpent. Right? He points his finger back at God and says, if you wouldn't have given me it before, yeah, she was a good gift. She's not really that great of a gift anymore, right? She made me do this. Okay? Blame shifting, self-justification, pointing fingers. Brothers and sisters is as old as the fall, right? How many of you have been guilty of doing that in your marriages? Blame shifting. Come on now. I can raise up my legs and... 
come on, I want to see you guys all doing this, right? Every single one of us have done that. Where is the origin? Where is the theological, biblical framework, right? The lenses, if you will, for understanding all of our actions, even in marriage, and the struggle, right, and the brokenness? Right here, brothers and sisters. Right here. This is where it began. And this now becomes the pattern, right, of in a broken, fallen world in marriage, personal and relationally, okay? I'm not going to continue. I want to open it up for some questions, okay? But notice the effects, relational breach on the vertical level. The gospel comes to solve that, right? right? There's re- reconciliation between us and God through confident trust in the Lord Jesus. And, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 22, all of Ephesians chapter 2 is really a, a good um, model as far as that text. Verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 deal with this vertical relationship, right? That God was rich in mercy, gives Jesus, for by grace you are saved, this. And then 2, 11 through 22 deals with relationships on the, on the horizontal level, right? But it flows from the vertical one first. That's why the whole social justice movement, right, two or three years ago, but over the, the uh, decades. It's not that everything brought up about that is wrong or evil and sinful, but it's not enough, right? And I'm not a social justice guy. I'm not into wokeness or anything like that. But the problem with trying to get people to just get along on the ethnic level or any other level for that matter is that if it doesn't flow from a right vertical relationship with God, it doesn't matter. It's no different than socialism. And that's actually a lot of what our country was wanting to head to, right? Where's the vertical redemption? Where's the vertical reconciliation that then impacts chapter 2 of Ephesians verses 11 through 22? All of these human relationships where we should love one another even with ethnic differences, where we should love one another even different social brackets, right? We should love one another, and especially in the church, because of chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians and the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ, we should model that in the church, that we love one another. And that our congregations even reflect that if that's the area, right? I always say to people, you know, a couple of buddies ask me, hey, you've always had a huge heart for um, multi-ethnic um, congregations. Being from L.A., right? You guys can understand that. Very multi-ethnic there. So now going to Washington, right? Do you still have that heart? Of course, I said. However, it's not about being multi-ethnic, I said. And I've said this many times over the years. I think I said it in my candidating trip. I said, the issue is, is the church a reflection of the community that it's in? Do we reflect, even ethnically, the community that we're a part of? If we don't, then we're probably leaning more introverted in our church, not reaching out enough to reach people for Christ in this area. Or the other part of it is we're not welcoming enough and we need to continue to work on that, right? But I'm noticing right here a pretty sweet diverse congregation because it's what we live in, right? That's the issue. So, sorry to go off on that tangent. Questions? Even practical ones, derivative ones from this framework? Wow. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you guys hear the question? 
Was it an actual serpent? Right? Is that the qu- Or was it like a human being that looked like a serpent? Some dragon-looking thing? What does the text say? Serpent, right? It was a serpent. Obviously, um, we don't want to read into the text more. To what extent or another did Adam and Eve understand that, right? All I know is it's a, this is a talking animal here, okay? And the other thing is obviously now as New Testament believers, right, looking at the progressive revelation and the whole scope of God's word, we know very clearly, and I think when Moses obviously wrote the, the, the Pentateuch, he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, um, there's a clear message. Then in chapter 3, we're going to look at this next week, he actually addresses the, 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 the serpent. And first, he talks about how it's going to slither around for the rest of, of its existence because of this. But then he gets into the enmity between the serpent and the woman. And it's very clear in Genesis 3.15 that there's something bigger happening here, right? There's a lot more than that. But I think we take, take it at face value, sister. It says a serpent, that's what they saw. But I think they understood to some capacity or another this is something bigger, right? And then later on in the consequences that are, or the curses that are outlined, I think it's, it's they now know this is a, an issue of cosmic warfare between two kingdoms, right? So does that help? All right. If you have more, need more clarity, just come up to me after, okay? Yes, sir. rules. Love it, brother. Great one. Did you guys all hear that? That uh, when, when uh, it's interesting that Eve, when she responds, she says, God told us not to touch it. Remember that? Well, back in chapter 2, God didn't say not to touch it, but maybe that was communicated from her, from her leader, Adam, right? So the idea of adding, right? And then our brother makes the, the, um, the correlation to, to Colossians chapter 2, which is dealing with with a legalism that is outside of Christ-centered sanctification. And so often the case is we're adding to what stands written. That's what we often say from the pulpit or in our conversations. Hey, don't go beyond what stands written. Right? Say what the text says. And you can even say, hey, this is my opinion. This is a, a derivative implication of the text. Some of you may take it different in terms of the outworking of the principle. But this is, there's one, one meaning of the text. Did you guys hear that? One meaning of the text. We don't go beyond what stands written. There's one meaning to every text, and some of those texts might be very debatable. We get all of that. But there's one meaning in the text and multiple applications, implications, inferences, so what's. Right? There's some beautiful freedom and liberty within biblical parameters in the implementation of the truth. But there's one meaning in the text. As one of my mentors has said, the meaning of the text is the text. The meaning of the text is the text. Think about that. Great example. You know, uh, I was pretty good in basketball. I played three sports, but I could never dunk. My goodness, you know. 
And then I, got, I became a Christian, and I remember visiting one church, and we were all playing basketball together. And one guy's like, okay, let's pray together, everybody, and then we're going to get out there to the basketball court. And he says, hey, we can do all things. We can do all things, you know? And what he meant is like, you could dribble between your legs, hit three-pointers, even if you weren't a three-point shooter, you know? And I'm thinking in my head, that's not what, that's not, I can't dunk, right? I can't do all things in Christ, <laughs> right? Right? What does that mean? Within the will of God and biblical parameters, you can do all things. But the first application of Philippians chapter 4 in that verse is in the context of contentment with respect to materialism. Paul is saying, I've learned to be content in poverty and prosperity. It isn't even about the money. He says, thank you for giving it to me, Philippians. No matter what, poverty, prosperity, I've learned to be content, right? I can do all things, what? Within biblical parameters, God's will. Through Christ who strengthens me. That's what it means. The first application of that text, or meaning rather, is, is with regards to um, uh, contentment in, with regards to materialism, or poverty, prosperity. But then you can draw out multiple implications and applications because isn't it true that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us in all areas of life? Yeah, beyond just money. But say that. See? So the meaning of the text is the text. The meaning of the text is the Scripture. There's not two or three or four me. Well, this is what it means to me. I get what people mean by that. This is how it applies to me. Maybe we should say that better. You know, and I, I take that, I take that to mean that I really need to, need to, um, you know, love my wife more. Well, I, we get that, right? Let's not be like cracking down on each other, banging each other on the head. That's not the meaning of the text. Come on, man. You're out of this small group, right? <laughs> That's not what we're saying, right? <laughs> Humility, love, but. Together in love, in partnership with one another, we need to look, make sure that we are rightly dividing the word of truth, cutting it straight, right? Amen, brethren? So that's not what happens in Genesis. There's a lot of distortion of the word of God, and it's really an attack on his character and his rule. It is an attack on his word and a distortion of his word. That is, sets the pattern for all of sin in our lives, personally and in our marriages and in everything that we do. Hopefully that helps continue to set a theological, biblical framework for us. And we're going to get into um, uh, further effects of the fall when God now addresses himself specifically to the serpent. We're going to start with the woman first, then the man, and then we'll go back to the serpent next week and talk about implications of that. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your gracious provision of your word and for the guidance that it gives us and for the fact that, Lord, we do not in any way, shape, or form need to be people who are confused. Help us to recognize, Lord, even as we just learned that it all begins with wrong, distorted, twisted um, recreations of who you are. Idolatry in the heart. Not seeing you rightly, accurately. Help us to return to that again and again. To remember that that is the root of sin. That when we give in to sin, we are believing lies about you. And about your good and perfect gifts that you always give. Even in saying no to us in that moment to what we want to pursue that doesn't glorify you, that is not what's best for us. Help us to trust in you in the light of who you are and help us to trust your word. Help us to be diligent students of your word, biblian people who are word-saturated people, not just in knowledge, but in our affections and in our actions, priorities, that we would be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Father, bless our marriages. Help us, Lord, to be broken over those areas where we're falling short. Help us to confess those to you and remember that, that at the foot of the cross, 
the answer to our confession is always, yes, I forgive you because of what my son has done. Father, bring renewal and restoration to our marriages. Help us to be committed to holiness and the fear in the fear of you, reverential awe of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.